Welcome to the Fertility Journeys podcast. Here's Dr. Shala Salem. Welcome, Faiza. What do you think was holding you back initially from pursuing fertility preservation and ultimately deciding to freeze your eggs? Just generalized anxiety about the process because there isn't a lot of information about it. Taking real ownership of it felt foreign because it's always been, you're a woman, of course. If you want to have kids, it's going to happen for you, right? Because that's your body's function to do this thing. So it was one of those things where I need to know, but I don't want to know. But if, if I have to do something about it, that's going to scare me. Yeah, I, I think it definitely can be scary because you're not sure. I was just very nervous about the whole thing. I didn't know what to expect necessarily. I had a lot of questions. I had a lot of just trepidation about the whole thing. I tried to go in with a really positive mindset. I was lucky to have a medical professional who was very understanding and patient. I know the fertility journey is not easy. Many suffer in silence, walking that line between hope and devastation. More often than we know, the path to building a family is met with challenges. I'm Dr. Shala Salem, and for over a decade, I have been helping people just like you on their fertility journey. As a physician and a PCOS warrior who's gone through my own fertility struggles, I am passionate about helping to support your mental and physical well-being, foster your resilience, and help you maintain your sense of self on this difficult journey. I created this podcast to support you. Each week, you can learn from our expert guests about proven holistic and integrative methods to nurture your mind, body, and spirit, and hear women share their own stories to remind you that you are not alone. Welcome to Fertility Journeys. Fertility fad, fact, or fiction. Here's the latest from Dr. Shala. Hi, welcome. Today I am speaking about a very important topic, endometriosis. This is a condition that affects probably estimated about 50% of women who are struggling with infertility. Some experts argue that the number could be even as high as 70%. But I see a lot of women who unfortunately don't have a diagnosis of endometriosis, but highly suspicious for endometriosis. They have been seemingly ignored. Lots of pain during menstrual cycles. They've had nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. This condition can be debilitating for some. And unfortunately, many have been told that this is normal, quote unquote, and they should deal with it or they should go on birth control pill that's going to help them. While birth control pills do help women who do have endometriosis in many instances, unfortunately, many women want to have an understanding of why. And part of the difficulty with endometriosis, unfortunately, is that it needs a surgical diagnosis. So wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just draw everyone's blood and see if you have endometriosis or you don't have endometriosis? Unfortunately, it's not that simple. And that's why patients can go on for sometimes as many as 15 years without a diagnosis, suffering. Many are referred to pain management or even in some situations, psychiatrists, because their doctors maybe have told them that the pain is in their head. It's always surprising to me how many women I see like this. I probably see at least one to two a week who have symptoms that seem almost obvious for endometriosis, but yet no one has ever discussed endometriosis, the possibility that they might have it. And perhaps we're not going to get a diagnosis, but at least acknowledging that woman's pain is real, that it's not made up, that they should just deal with it, that this is part of being a woman because it's not normal. Endometriosis is a condition where the tissue that's similar to the lining of the inside of the uterus or the endometrium is found in areas that are outside the uterus. So most commonly in the ovaries or the fallopian tube, we can also find it in the bowel. And more rarely, it's been found in distant tissues like the lungs or even the kidneys. The condition is a chronic inflammatory one that results in scar tissue in the pelvis, can result in adhesions, which can contribute to infertility and the pain. 
And it's estimated that it affects one in 10 women in the general population. But as I mentioned before, as many as 50% of those who are having difficulty conceiving or have a diagnosis of infertility. The symptoms that someone with endometriosis might have could be painful periods, pain with intercourse, difficulty conceiving, diarrhea, constipation during menses, nausea, vomiting, to name a few. Many women experience a very debilitating pain that prevents them from participating in normal activities like going to work or going to school. Many of the patients I see give a story of missing school often in high school or university because of their menstrual cycles, not being able to go to work because of their menstrual cycles, and again, being told by their doctor it's normal. Now, the level of pain that someone has with endometriosis does not indicate the level of the severity of their condition. And also to be mentioned, some women who have endometriosis do not have pain. There are cases where patients do not have symptoms at all, and in fact, they have endometriosis. Now, there are some women who have endometriosis who can conceive without the assistance of infertility treatment. In severe cases of endometriosis, there can be scarring that may prevent proper communication between the fallopian tubes and the ovaries, and in some cases can cause tubal blockage. It is not known why some women with very mild endometriosis may need fertility treatment. Some of the possible causes include changes in the immune function, hormonal changes, abnormal functioning of the fallopian tubes, and the overall inflammatory nature of the condition. Now, we have no known cause of endometriosis, unfortunately, but it appears to be related to complex interactions of our hormones, our immune system, and also environmental and genetic factors. You know, we do know that there's a higher risk of developing endometriosis if someone's mother or sister was also affected. Now, your doctor might suspect endometriosis because of symptoms. However, endometriosis is diagnosed surgically, as I said earlier. I mean, most commonly it's seen through laparoscopy and then your surgeon will take a biopsy of the tissue and send it for a confirmation with a pathologist. And during the surgery as well, your surgeon may be able to treat endometriosis and evaluate the extent of your case. Unfortunately, there's no cure for endometriosis, but there are treatments that are available. Options are in relation to your age, your desire to conceive, what the severity of your symptoms are, and the stage of the endometriosis. And this is something that you would discuss with your provider. Some examples, as I mentioned, surgery, hormonal suppression medications like Lupron, and birth control pills. Many patients do get relief after surgery or with the use of birth control pills. Some patients do not have full relief. In fact, many don't. But often if I have a patient who says, when I take birth control pills, my pain is significantly reduced, it can be somewhat of an indicator that this patient may have endometriosis. Now, just because you have a diagnosis with endometriosis, as I mentioned before, does not mean that someone will experience infertility. Some women can achieve a pregnancy without difficulty. And while the use of assisted reproductive technology is the first line in patients who experience infertility due to endometriosis, our studies seem to indicate that the treatment success depends on the individual factors and that play the most crucial role to the outcome. Some of the things that they would take into account would be age, the duration of your infertility, the disease level of progression, and what your family goals are. For women who have endometriosis, I often recommend an anti-inflammatory style of eating like a Mediterranean diet. In that style of eating, you're eating lots of vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, olive oil, fish, and lean meats, and a reduction in processed, packaged, high-sugar foods. Inflammation is a key component of endometriosis, and unfortunately, eating a diet that's high in processed foods, and also there's some information that eating a diet high in red meat can contribute to higher inflammation and will only support endometriosis. The other area is exposure to environmental toxins is really important for those, for all women really, but even more so for those with endometriosis. 
There have been lots of studies showing that exposure to higher levels of toxin has been linked to endometriosis. And women with endometriosis, we've seen higher levels of exposure to things like BPA or phthalates. Those that are dealing with endometriosis are often dealing with, as we said before, increased pain, as a result, increased stress levels. So managing stress in the case of endometriosis is very important. Some of the ways that stress and pain can be managed is through yoga and acupuncture. Unfortunately, endometriosis is really complex. So many women, and perhaps someone who's listening today, has been suffering in silence. And again, many of you have been told it's very normal to have pain with your period and all of your tests are normal and we can't seem to find any reason why you shouldn't be able to conceive. I urge you, if you are somebody who thinks that you might be dealing with some of these symptoms, speak with your doctor. See if this is something that they think could be possible for your case. Is this something that could apply to you? It may not, but I think it's worth a discussion with your doctor if you're experiencing any of these symptoms. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you found this information helpful. I do this podcast every week in hopes of just helping one person who's listening. Let me know if there's anything else that you want to hear me cover, any questions that you have. Please contact us on social media if you have any ideas for show topics or segment topics. Until next week. Welcome, Faiza. Thank you so much for agreeing to be here today. Thank you so much for having me. So you are actually the host of your own podcast, yeah. which interestingly enough was part of what sparked your interest in fertility preservation and ultimately deciding to freeze your eggs. Can you speak a little bit about how that happened? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is definitely what was the deciding factor in pursuing this. I have a podcast with my friend Mahek Jamil. It's called The Fundamentalists, and we try to break down taboos in South Asian culture and dissect issues across the diaspora in general. And one of the things we decided to tackle last season was egg freezing and just fertility in, in general. And Mahek actually had a friend who had gone through elective egg freezing herself, and she joined us for an episode, and it was really eye-opening. I knew about the procedure, and I knew that my company actually covered the procedure. And I thought about maybe possibly doing it, but I never really made any effort <laughs> towards it until speaking with her and understanding more about the procedure and the process. And I think having it demystified for me was really helpful. Just meeting somebody, not just somebody from, right. from a doctor's office explaining it to me, but actually having a person who looks like me and is around the same age and did it for the same reasons mm -hmm. was really helpful. And then I was like, okay, you know, this feels, I feel more comfortable with the idea of this. But then it still took me a few more months <laughs> before I actually took the step. And it wasn't until we did a follow-up episode. That was actually one of our most popular episodes because a lot of people are really interested in this. There aren't a lot of people talking about it, especially women of color. I'm Baksani and grew up in a Muslim household, and there aren't a lot of Baksani Muslim women talking about it. Um, and we were lucky enough to have a physician's assistant, the VP of clinical operations of a clinic that specializes in this, come on the podcast and explain from like the clinical side, what it is. And she was so empathetic and so caring that I was like, okay, I'm just going to go with you now. Take my hand. <laughs> Take me on this journey. And I recognize that's a very privileged position to be in, to know somebody who's been through it and then know somebody who can actually facilitate the process and take care of me through all yeah. this entire thing. But yeah, it was through the podcast, really. I think if it had not been for those experiences, I don't know if I would have felt as comfortable as I did pursuing it on my own. What do you think was holding you back initially from pursuing it? I think generally a uh, lack of information, lack of access. I haven't had many positive experiences with medical professionals, especially when it comes to my reproductive health. And just general anxiety about thinking about the future and yeah. thinking about my fertility in that way, right? Taking real ownership of it felt foreign because it's always been you're a woman. If you want to have kids, of course, it's going to happen for you, right? Because that's your body's function to do this thing. So it was one of those things where I need to know, but I don't want to know. But if, if I have to do something about it, that's going to scare me. It was just it was a lot of just generalized anxiety about the process because there isn't a lot of information about it. Yeah, I, I think it definitely can be scary because you're not sure 
I don't know if in your mind you had made decisions. What did your future look like? What your plans are? Will there be a partner? Will there not be a partner? I'm sure it brings up all of those types of questions that may be uncomfortable to try to think about it when you're not ready. Yeah, absolutely. And that was definitely a part of the decision-making process. I just ended a long-term relationship. I knew that I needed to take to, for myself. And at 33, this is something I need to consider, right? Mm -hmm. What is my fertility looking like? What's my, my reproductive health looking like? And because I knew I wasn't ready to jump into a, another relationship, it's been almost a year now and I'm still like not ready. So that was part of the decision-making process for sure. And towards the end goal, knowing that I do want to eventually have kids, not having my fertility be a factor in the decision to date or to pursue another relationship. I think that muddied. happens quite often, unfortunately, yeah. as a woman, especially like you said, you're a Pakistani woman and Muslim woman, especially in our cultures, there's this sort of expectation that by the time you get to a certain age, hey, you should be married and uh, you haven't oh, yeah, had absolutely. children yet. What's going on? And being a professional woman, you are mm -hmm. someone on the career path and it's very different than perhaps mothers or grandmothers had done in the past because now we're on the professional yeah. train. And at the same time, we still have to think about our age. And there's all this talk about, oh, my goodness, if you get to a certain age, it's like you fall off a cliff. But it can make it very difficult to go decide because you're kind of nervous, right, to go get your testing done. It does oh, make absolutely. you a little bit yeah. nervous but what the test's going to show. When you went ahead and decided to get the initial testing done, what kind of feelings did that bring out for you? I was very nervous. I was very nervous. My sister, who's four years older than me, had just had a baby, and she was very lucky in that she was able to conceive naturally. And initially, she had been told that she might need to start IVF. And I think it was maybe a day or two after she really found out she was pregnant that she actually got her IVF meds wow. arrived. But I was just very nervous about the whole thing. I didn't know what to expect necessarily. I had a lot of questions. I had a lot of just trepidation about the whole thing. I tried to go in with a really positive mindset. I was, again, lucky to have a medical professional who was very understanding and patient. And so she sat with me for, I think I was there for almost like two hours, where she answered every single question that I had and explained everything very thoroughly and really took the time to understand where I was coming from, what my background was, what my concerns were. And the testing itself, and we did the transvaginal ultrasound to count the number of follicles. So at that point, I knew right away that my ovarian reserves was kind of low. Mm -hmm. And then the AMH confirmed that. I think it wasn't until I was, of course, disappointed leaving. And it was the train ride back where it really hit me, where I was like, the results weren't great. And then being the overachiever that I am, I was like, why can't my body perform the way I want it to? Right. And so there were a lot of mixed feelings about it and that while well, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing in this case, right, I'm, I'm taking control of my fertility, I'm planning for the future, looking ahead. And it's unfortunate that my ovarian reserve is where it is, but we're doing what we can. I think there was also a lot of anger, mm -hmm. too, because of the lack of information that I think women receive. If you have received comprehensive sex education, there's a lot of information about how not to get right. pregnant. And that's kind of where it ends. And there isn't a lot of information or resources around just like how your body actually works and yep. how fertility actually works. And I learned a lot through this process about just my body in general. And I was frustrated by the medical professionals that I'd seen that it kind of failed right. me in a lot of ways that never mentioned anything about, hey, you're in your 30s and you might want to like think about fertility testing or do you want none of that was ever a concern. It was like, oh, if you want to get on birth control, let's get you on birth control. OK, you have a cyst. Let's get that taken care of. But there was never any dialogue around what that would mean for my fertility going forward. Yeah, I think that's such an important point because I'm sure that you felt disappointed or let down by, hey, I've been to doctors in the past. I, I go to my right. regular annual exams and all of that. And why did no one say anything to me about this before? Right. 
I see that a lot, too, where patients are not talked about it. They had no idea. Even patients over 35 or even 40, they don't get the information that they really should. So I think you were very fortunate to have the experience that you did to be able to get the process done. Um, but it's upsetting that the medical community failed you in that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I had a, a cyst removed in 2018, mm -hmm. I believe. I had a cyst on my ovary. No one could tell me how it formed. Suspicion that it was endometriosis, but the surgeon didn't agree with that diagnosis. I just never found out why that mm -hmm. happened. I had to have it surgically removed because of the size of it. It had grown at such a rapid pace, and it was also at a weird part of my ovary, so they had to, like, do a bikini line incision, all of this stuff. And it was a, kind of a, a little bit mm -hmm. traumatic, too, because it was the first right. major surgery that I had really had. And I now realize just the complete lack of communication, because I didn't know to even ask these questions. And no one was offering this information that it was located on my ovary. And then when they removed it, they probably took some follicles with it, which is why my ovarian, was, especially on that, on my left ovary was low. None of that conversation ever happened. There was no real follow-up about whether or not this was endometriosis or if there are anything, anything I need to make sure I'm looking out for. So it was just this very opaque. You have a cyst, let's process. remove it. And that's the end. And that was kind of it. Yeah, there was no talk about preventative care or post-op care, anything about my fertility or any concerns that, you know, I might have as a woman of like childbearing age that wants children. Right. Like that was never And I mean, discussed. you shouldn't know what kind of questions to ask. They should be telling you, right. hey, you're having a yeah. surgery. You're going to be removing an ovarian cyst, which is going to, even in the best hands of the surgeon, there will be potentially effects on the ovarian function. That's this kind right. of stuff that they yeah. should be telling you, you know, and unfortunately, then you find out later on down the line when you're trying to freeze your eggs that this ovary is a little bit slower. Yeah, like two, three years after my surgery, I find this out and no one thought to mention it. And I think that's just also that's how our healthcare system behaves, right? You have to advocate for yourself as a patient in order to get care. You have to come in. I know people make fun of like people with WebMD, but you, that's it's oftentimes the only way you get information is by WebMDing stuff. And you have to know what questions to ask. And there is an onus on the patient to come in with a lot of information and knowledge or else you're not going to get the care that you deserve. Uh, and I think that's what I learned the hard way over the last Yeah, years. it's really unfortunate because on one hand, you have physicians who are telling you, listen, don't go online and don't read online. But where are you supposed to get the information if you're not getting it from your physician? Right. And I understand that there are a lot of physicians that don't have the time. The system has really failed them in that way. Because I get that. I have a lot of patients who have endometriosis or suspected very high suspicion of endometriosis. Not one doctor has told them it's not normal to have pelvic pain. It's not normal to have pain with intercourse. Mm -hmm. It's not normal for X, Y, and Z. And they're like, oh, yes, I presented. Hey, do I have endometriosis? And the doctor told me, no, don't stop reading online. So if you get those kind of answers, I think it's really important, as you said, advocate for yourself. If you're not comfortable with your provider, look for somebody else who you feel can really hear you and listen to you because there's nothing wrong with asking questions. Yeah. When you ultimately decided to um, do the process, we know that this is something that can be time consuming. You have to take time off. Were you concerned about your your employer supporting you or being able to take off time from work? Because that's always a big concern for a lot of women that are going through the process. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I'm in a very privileged position in that my employer is 80% women. It's a multinational corporation. Uh, there were many of my colleagues had actually done this already, and I was able to speak to my manager pretty freely about it. That this was going to happen, and my VP actually was like, oh, yeah, I did that a few years ago, and here's what you can expect. And if you need to take time off, just let me know, and we'll plan ahead. So there was very much an openness. I had some coworkers ask me about the process. They're like, oh, please let, let me know how mm -hmm. it goes. I'm, I'm thinking about doing it myself. So I had that flexibility, and I know a lot of people 
might not yeah. necessarily have that. And I, I think a lot more employers are actually offering to cover elective egg freezing because they recognize that it is a real benefit to women. But I have to say, I might be in a bit of the minority in that my employer was very flexible and understanding and it wasn't something I needed to keep pushing. Yeah, like I mean, I think that's great. I, I wish more yeah. employers will be like that because I do have patients who do face challenges with getting time off from their employers and, and they don't tell them because they're concerned about what that may mean for their job and taking time off or being late may be a problem. So some people are forced to take time off using, you know, FMLA or things like that. So yeah, it would be great. Hopefully soon everyone will have access to this process. When you ultimately decided, was there ever a point when you were in the process or going through to start the process where you're like, I'm not sure if this is the right decision or were you really feeling very confident that you're doing this and this was the right thing for you? I was pretty confident. I'm someone that doesn't do well with uncertainty, but once I get clear, I am pretty firm in my decision. So once I got clear and once I met somebody who'd done it, met this medical professional who like walked me through on the podcast, walked us through it all, I felt really good about it. And I was also lucky in that I had the support of mm -hmm. my siblings and friends. My only moment of really just concern, not doubt, was just about how my body would react to the meds. But I wasn't worried about my decision. I didn't doubt my decision. Yeah. So now, how did you feel? Because you said you were kind of concerned about how your body would react. How did you end up feeling when you were in the process? I was very concerned about the side effects. So I was like hyper aware of like my body and how I was feeling. And the first week, I was actually surprised at how okay I felt. And I had done a few days of estrogen priming beforehand. So I'd been on some medication even before I started the injectables. But the first week I felt okay. I didn't notice any huge differences, just maybe a little bit of nausea, a little bit of fatigue. And it felt manageable and it felt fine. It was probably mm -hmm. the second week where I was like, okay, now I'm feeling, now I can feel like the irritability and the fatigue and my appetite was non-existent, which I thought was interesting. Like mm -hmm. wasn't eating very much. Like I'd have to remind myself, okay, we haven't right. eaten and it's three o'clock in the afternoon. We need to eat something. And just being more mindful about making sure I drink lots of water and getting my electrolytes in and all of that. So it took a while for the side effects to kick in. But even then, once I did start feeling them, they weren't for me, at least, again, very lucky in that they weren't unmanageable or prevented me from functioning at work and things like that. I think it was just more the emotionality. Like, mm -hmm. Okay, I feel like my mood is dipping. Let me take some time for myself. But for the most part, I think what I was kind of okay. things did you do during that time period to take care of your mental health and your physical health when you were going through it and experiencing some of the side effects? I made sure to make no plans. I made no plans with anybody. I'd committed to nothing. <laughs> and I think that was probably the best way forward. I tried to be very kind to myself. So if I wasn't feeling good on a certain day, instead of being like, no, we need to push through it and let's get going. I was just like, okay, we're not feeling good today. And that's okay. So I tried to be very kind to myself. As far as self-care, just being very patient and slow with things and making sure I got my rest in. It is an overwhelming yeah. process and I'm not a morning person and I'd have to get up in the morning to go get my tests done mm -hmm. every other day. So I just had to be like, okay, well, make sure we get our rest in, make sure we try to get a good night's sleep in while I was doing my injections was, was like, I think almost like a form of self-care where like this is this right. normalizing the process and then having somebody there who's like cheering me. Did you do all. all the injections by yourself? I did. I felt like such a badass <laughs> doing it on my own. It felt really good to be able to do that for myself. I'm not very squeamish. Mm -hmm. So initially it was like just interesting. Right. And then after a while, oh man, look at me. I don't even need to watch the instructional videos anymore. I know what to do and I can mix my own meds. And it felt very empowering, especially being in my 30s and single. And it, it made me realize there is very little I can't do on my own. And you're like in control in a way, right? So... Yeah. In a process that sort of feels like you're a little bit not in control, that's a way to feel in control. And I think that's one of the things about, you know, egg freezing or fertility preservation is it's not really 100% insurance, right? So we don't know what the destiny of the eggs will be in the future, but you are here creating an option for yourself, taking control of what 
your potential options are in the future. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that was why I felt so good and firm about my decision, having the option. Totally. I knew that this is insurance mm -hmm. for me. My employer is paying for it and I have the flexibility to do it. Why not? I don't know what my future really looks like as far as when I'll have a partner. So then let's take this worry, this right. concern out of the equation altogether and, and give, give myself the option to have some control over something that's usually, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But like I said, just having the option or feeling like you have a little bit of control can really be empowering. Absolutely. You mentioned that you had support from your siblings. Now, I know you're a Pakistani-American woman. It's a little bit taboo, this area of fertility, to talk to your family about it. Why did you decide to talk to your family about it? I really wanted to keep this dialogue open because I, in general, like to be very honest and communicative. And so it felt like this is a very big decision. And the process itself is two weeks, but, you know, it takes, you know, I had the priming protocol and then in the recovery also takes some time. And it, there was no way because I talked to my family so often and try to see them pretty often that, that I would Correct. be able to hide this. And it also felt like this is not something I should hide or should uh, need to hide. And we need to normalize it. And it is a, it's a smart decision that I'm making. So I had mentioned it to my brother and sister and they were pretty supportive. My brother was actually very supportive. He's like, this is a really good decision and smart and all of that. I did wait until I was certain about timing and all of that before I talked to my mom about it. Just because I knew that there's no frame of reference for her around this. She knows about IVF. We've had family members who've gone through that to have their kids. And she's in the medical field. But I think the idea of doing mm -hmm. it electively is concerning. Because, of course, there are like cultural pressures as well. So I had my sibling support. And we have that relationship where I can talk to them about these things. I'm lucky that I have a mother where we can have this dialogue. And initially, she was just... She was a little hesitant and was like, well, why can't you just get married right. and have kids? Why do you have to do this? So then I explained the science to her and I explained this is about options. This is about just it's insurance. And this is me taking control of this. And, and then she was on board after that. And I told her, you know, if you have questions, you can talk mm -hmm. to my brother, you can talk to my sister. And then that was the other thing is I asked my brother and sister to right. make sure that they backed me up. And if needed to, they could run interference. And I had one point I was like, I don't want to be the kind of daughter that hides yeah, things. Totally from you. And I don't want you to be the kind of mom that I have yeah. to hide things from. So yeah, it's also taken a long time to get here, right? It's not like this was always the case with my mom. Yeah. You know, you have to build towards it and have that trust. And I think in the last few years, we've tried to be very honest and open with each other and have these kinds of conversations that might feel difficult, but are better in the long run. It made the process for me so much easier because my mom was the one who came and picked yeah. me up from the procedure. And she's the one who took care of me that weekend. Which yeah, was really I mean, totally. I agree. I think it's great that you have the opportunity to tell them. But I know that for some, they may feel not open. So it's wonderful that you have the relationship where you can discuss. Because I think a lot of cultures, we don't talk about fertility. We don't talk about periods. All of that stuff is kind of off mm -hmm. limits from discussing that with your family. So it can make it a little bit more difficult to discuss something like this. Yeah. And not to mention that the process is, to be honest, is only recently in the last decade become not experimental. So it's very new for the older generation. They're like, what is this you know, egg freezing thing? I've heard yeah. of IVF, but why do you need to freeze your eggs? You don't have problems, right? You don't have problems. Right. Yeah. And that was kind of where my mother was coming from. She was like, why, why do you need to do this? I think it was just because she didn't understand what it was. And once I explained what it was, she was like, oh, OK, because it's so new and there isn't a conversation around this really at all, even mm -hmm. in the mainstream, that it can be a really difficult conversation to start. Yeah. And I think a part of the limitation of it really being a huge part of the discussion is that it's not accessible to everyone, unfortunately. And the process can be nope. costly. And so often then if you don't know if you're going to need to use them, there is this idea, well, if I don't really need it, should I do it? And if I have to spend a lot, which so many people unfortunately don't have access and cannot afford to do. So it can be a hard decision for some. The cost, it's prohibitively mm -hmm. expensive, right? Even though my insurance covered most of it, there are all these incidental costs. There are these right. other costs that I didn't think about, like transportation. And I had to pay uh, my copay every time I went and I was going every other day. And 
even now I just got a message the other day what insurance didn't cover. Right. So that was another charge. And so there are a lot of expenses involved. It is unfortunately mm -hmm. right now a luxury. And there is no guarantee Correct. that you'll get the results you Correct. want. Right. And mm -hmm. because you're spending a ton of money. I mean, if you don't get what you need and life birth and all of that, then it can be really disappointing. Yeah. There's a lot of states now that have laws for covering fertility preservation, but most of that's in the context of cancer patients. So many employers have the option to decide to offer that benefit or not. Hopefully soon we'll start to see some changes where we'll see more access because even when it comes to IVF for women that are dealing with infertility, majority of states don't cover that process either, which is really just, it's terrible and unfortunate. It's a woman's, right? Mm -hmm. It's seen as a woman's problem. And we know how people feel about women's right. problems. So it can be really frustrating because a lot of folks who are going through IVF, it's actually male fertility mm -hmm. that's the yeah. issue. But women are the ones that bear the, the cost of it, both financial and Most of the treatment will surround yeah. female. We know we bear most of the emotions. And like insurance providers, mm -hmm. they don't see it as medical necessity which is terrible. We yeah. should have this yeah. type of thing available to anybody that wants to use it. Yeah, I fully so agree. So you decided to share your journey on social media. So did, yeah. how was that decision? Because obviously now you're taking something that's considered very private and then putting it out on a sort of public stage. And why did you do that? <laughs> That's a very good question. I've thought about this. So we heard already did on the podcast and I, I had expressed my interest in doing it on the podcast. And I actually had a couple of listeners follow up and be like, did you do it? Did you do it? Yeah. Were you like, why did I share it on the podcast? Um, I shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> if mm -hmm. I hadn't, I don't think I would have done it. Now I'm being held accountable. I've said it out loud to however many listeners we have. So that was part of it. But really what drove me to share, I would have loved to have seen this myself. Uh, I would have loved to see somebody who looked like me, my age, doing it for similar mm -hmm. reasons, sharing their experience. And so that's why I started sharing. And it also just helped me get through the process, too. I think I was a little naive about how radical mm -hmm. it ended up being perceived. I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to do this and it's going to be so amazing and whatever. I just did it because this would have been great for me to see. And I'm sure there's somebody out there who would right. appreciate seeing this content. I had a lot of people reach out to me saying that they were really glad that I was sharing this, that they were considering it themselves or they were going through it or they'd gone through it. And, and this was really helpful just to know that they weren't alone. The impetus to share was born just kind of out of my own naivete. And then the response made me realize, oh, this is a real thing that people are really responding to. And that was pretty. Yeah, that's amazing, too see people really resonate with your experience? Because I'm, I'm sure that it was difficult to decide to do it in a way. But then when you see that you're helping people, you're like, oh, actually, this was important, that it really helped a lot of people. Yeah, I cannot stress how much I underestimated yeah. the importance of sharing this because I really went into it being like, oh, I'll just share what's going on because I had mentioned on the podcast and I didn't expect it to resonate. Did you have any naysayers about you being on social media with your personal experience? Not really. Mm. I think I, I did get some questions from family about just kind of generally why. The other thing is they know what kind of person I am and I have a pretty strong personality. So they were just kind of like, what is this? And then I'd be like, well, this is why I did it. And then they'd just leave it alone. I didn't have anybody come up to me and say I shouldn't right. be sharing this information or that I shouldn't be sharing the process. It was more just like, why are you doing this? Why did you feel that it was necessary to do it? It was a way to, to deal with the whole process because it can mm -hmm. feel very alienating at times. Did you feel nervous about sharing it in real time? There might be something that you may not want to share and they would come up against that. No, I yeah. made it a point not to share numbers. A friend of mine who runs her own fertility blog called Brown Girl actually mentioned that to me, how she tries to not share numbers. And at first I didn't really understand. And then I understood why it was important not to, because everybody's body is different, right? I shouldn't be comparing to others. And I think seeing somebody else's numbers, yep. I'm going to be obsessed with the numbers 
regardless, right? If you're going through this, you're going to be obsessed with your numbers. All you do is talk about numbers. And so Mm -hmm. I'd rather be obsessed with my numbers and compare it to my own growth and how my body's performing rather than looking at somebody else's because that'll make this process so much more difficult and so much more overwhelming. I made the conscious decision not to share my numbers and not to look at other mm-hmm. people's numbers. And I know that's kind of hard to do because we're competitive by nature. So I already knew mm-hmm. my baseline was kind of low. I would be happy with a certain yield that right. somebody else may not be happy with. But I knew where my body was at and I knew whatever I got was mm-hmm. going to be the best that my body could do. Yeah, I think that is really important. There are a lot. And so, I mean, yeah. if you want to share your numbers online, then... You know, that's your choice. But oftentimes we see lots of people publicizing all their numbers and it can be very anxiety provoking, especially if you're someone that may be dealing with diminished ovarian reserve and what's wrong with me and how come I can't make X number, right? How do I get X number? Or this is terrible because I got X number, which is low, right? And it, it doesn't translate to success just because you have a large number always. So I think that's super important. I think it can be very good that you decided to keep it private because that's also, even for yourself, sometimes you may have anxiety by sharing it. Maybe not even someone else, but you may have the anxiety of sharing it at the same time. And I just didn't see the need for it either. I, I already let people know I had right. a low ovarian reserve. Yeah. Do you really need to know the mm-hmm. number of follicles and my AMH right. level? And it's all for that. you. That's not going to be helpful for anybody, really. Yeah. If you could give advice to yourself pre-egg freezing, what would you say? I would have told myself to do it a lot sooner. I would have told myself not to be so hard on myself. This latent type A personality that I have really came out in full force. I think I would have just told myself, you're going to be okay. Your body's doing its best, regardless of how you feel like it should be performing. It's doing its best and you just have to let it do it. Yeah, I think that's really hard when you are, like you said, a type A type of personality and you're so driven by production. What you should be doing, you should be doing this, you should take a break and all of that. So it can be hard to just relinquish control in this process because there's not much you have. There's not much you can do. And, and it's, it's a very structured process. Mm-hmm. I felt like a, probably the most disconnected from my body during the whole two-week period where I was injecting because it just felt like I was a machine. I was going to my appointments in the morning, doing the injections at night, and it just was like a really intense routine. And as proud of myself as I was doing it all, I didn't feel connected to my body. I think that's something people should also be mindful of. My entire stomach Mm -hmm. was just like a a halo of red dots and bruises from the injections at something else to just be mindful of. It'll feel weird for a while. Did you have any friends who had gone through it before that you were discussing this with while you were doing the process? No, I was really the only one out of my friend group, the first one to do this. Yeah. Wow. So that's tough because you can't really go, hey, did this happen to you? Of course, you could speak to your clinic, but there's something about speaking to your friends or someone that you know at work about the process and just kind of nonchalantly talking about it, right? Yeah. That was also what was helpful about sharing it because then I had people who who reached out to me being like, oh, I'd gone through it and this is what happened. Or uh, like I mentioned, Brown Girl Infertility, she's a friend, so texted her if I had any concerns. The clinic themselves were very responsive whenever I had questions. I got more questions than I asked. So I got a lot of questions from my friends being like, how is it? I just encourage everybody to do it. I'm the first one out of my friend group to do it. Have you been the inspiration for some friends to do it? Like I said, I've been encouraging my friends, the ones who are interested in doing it. No one's taken the Mm -hmm. dive off the board yet. Mm -hmm. I did tell a friend that I would help her with her injections when she did decide to do it because she doesn't like needles. But hopefully I start a trend with them because I think it's important. And I did tell some younger cousins as well, like if you have an employer who's Mm -hmm. willing to cover it, you should absolutely do it. And I feel like I'm just a, a resource for folks who are interested in doing it. At a bare minimum, if you are even remotely considering or might consider it, I would at least get your ovarian reserve testing done. Yes. Know where you're at because so many women will come in 
when they're ready to try to conceive and now the numbers are very low or very poor. And again, that doesn't equal not being successful, but it, it may translate in a woman who does have a lower ovarian reserve that she may have difficulties. Is it connected to something like endometriosis? I think it's important just to know what your numbers look like, get an ultrasound done to look at your ovarian function, antrophalcal count, so you can just know where you are. Just be empowered by your numbers. Yeah, it's your body, right? That's what I was butting up against. Because there's such a taboo, there's such a stigma around this, but it's your body. It's about you and your process and what you want for your life. And so why not just know what's happening? With yourself. Yeah. And we see more women delaying fertility. It's more common yeah. to see women having pregnancies in their 30s and 40s. And there are women who don't have difficulties. Culturally as well, coming from the South Asian background, we're like, of course we're fertile. Yep. Of course we're going to have babies. Mm -hmm. You know, my grandmother and great-grandmother had babies well into their 30s. A different world. That time was totally different. Plus, many of the women started with their first child in their early 20s. Uh, yeah. And so oftentimes, it's not them having their first child in their 30s, mid-30s, 40s, right. which is different. Exactly. And I think that's what I had in the back of my head. I was like, oh, fine. My grandmother, my great-grandmother, they all had kids. Everybody had their first kid very early mm -hmm. on. So that's something else. I think it's just like this idea that, of course, it's not going to be an issue. Right. Yeah. And and we all may have somebody in her family who didn't have children who just nobody asked. Nobody asked questions, you know, or they didn't get married. And, and we didn't know whether somebody may have been struggling with fertility or someone in your family who may have had pregnancy losses and they had children. So unfortunately, there is history of infertility and pregnancy losses in families. It's just not talked about. So yeah. that's the other thing, yeah. too, that can be sometimes difficult to navigate. Did you feel that freezing your eggs has changed any of your perspective about meeting a future partner? It's taken a lot of the pressure off. One of the factors in pursuing this was that I didn't want my fertility to be something that hung over my head because I knew I, I wanted to take my time after my last relationship and really be intentional about when I decided to start and how I was going to start dating. It just opened up the parameters for yep. me in, in, in a lot of ways. It's definitely made it much less daunting because we all have a friend or know of someone who's like, I need to find somebody, I need to get married so I can have a kid right away because I'm in my 30s or something like that. That wasn't something I wanted for myself. Yeah, and that's definitely the pressure we feel as women is that I got married at an older age. I did fertility treatment right away. There was no time to pause and stop and think about it, which even if you end up meeting your partner, sometimes you want to have the time to not have to worry yeah. about trying to get pregnant right away because you're older. And so unfortunately, yes, yeah, sometimes someone will come to me and they did take time with their partner, which we all should be able to do and not feel this immense pressure to try to go and look into treatment or something right away. So yeah, then freezing right. your eggs exactly. or freezing your embryos can be a great option if you want to just have a little bit more control of future. Yeah, absolutely. I am a huge proponent of supporting mental health, and I think it's really important to find the joy in everyday life. And especially for those who are going through fertility journey, as you were saying, you you were just kind of feeling disconnected from your body. And I think a lot of times we just want to get through it, get through the process. But I think sometimes it's important to really pay attention to things and still find joy in your everyday life, even when you're in the process. What's something that brings you joy? I live in Astoria in Queens, and I live very close to Astoria Park. So my little moment of joy that I try to find every day is going to the park and taking a walk along the riverside. And that does, especially when the sun is setting and you have this beautiful skyline and the lights start coming on, and that is definitely my moment of joy. I have two cats who I love very much, and so they were very <laughs> supportive during this whole process. It was just nice to have, you know, right. beings around that also, they can't talk, which is great. I think <laughs> They're that, nothing that, but supportive during your journey. <laughs> they're nothing but supportive. They like watch me do the injections and cheer me on. So, yeah, I would say that especially uh, during the pandemic, mm -hmm. the walks in the park were really something that I, I took for granted when I first moved here and the pandemic happened. And then through this whole process, that's been my moment of zen going and taking a walk in the park. And I like doing it alone, just going 
taking a long walk around the park listening to music or whatever it is and having that moment to myself. Yeah, I think it's great yeah. to get outdoors. We spend so much time indoors. We never really get to get out and enjoy nature and pay attention really to the sunset or yeah. the sun or the flowers or the trees, all of that. We don't pay attention to yeah. it. We just kind of take it for granted, like we you don't. said. So I think that's something that pandemic has really made us appreciate being outside and really enjoying that. Yeah, absolutely. It really has. Well, thank you so much for being here today, for sharing your fertility journey. It really means a lot to me to be able to share this with others and hopefully inspire other women to at least inquire or get more information about their own fertility. How can listeners find you? I'm most active on Instagram and you can find me at Fiza underscore Shireen, S-H-I-R-E-E-N. I also have a blog, FizaShireen.com. I've shared some of my journey as well and just also share kind of personal essays and writing. My Instagram also has in my highlights, I have the whole fertility journey from start to finish, um, the egg freezing journey. So you can catch more information. There yeah, I would well. definitely recommend going to your highlights because you have a lot of information about going through the process, which I think is super helpful for anyone who's considering it or going through the process themselves. And you also have a podcast, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> The podcast is called The Femdementalists, and you can find it on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thank you so yeah. much. It was entirely my pleasure. Thank you so much. The Fertility Journeys podcast. Thank you for listening today. Episodes of Fertility Journeys drop every week. Follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at fertilityjourneys.org. Next time on the Fertility Journeys podcast. Welcome, Aisha. They diagnosed me with stage four endometriosis. And that was a really tough moment, really happy that I'd been finally believed after 15 years, but also really, really sad thinking, how is this going to affect my fertility? I had a lot of self-blame. I should have done something differently. I should have spoken to like 12 doctors instead of five or seven doctors. I sat with a lot of guilt because I was thinking, I can't give my husband a child. And I think yeah. that really hurts because you're already going through physical pain. You're already going through pain where you've been dismissed for such a long time where you haven't been believed. And then you're also going through a pain where you don't know if you're ever going to be able to conceive or have a child. It was a lot to deal with. Sometimes when I look back, I think to myself, how did I manage all of these emotions and the physical and pain? And still you were dealing with physical pain. Your endometriosis didn't just go away. It really was horrible. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Please consult with your own physician as information shared on this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice.